70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hello, my name is Bernd Seiser. Seit 1974 Hello, my name is Bünd Seiser. I've been listening to shortwave radio since 1974 and to KBS World Radio's German service from its day one, May 1st, 1981. I have also been serving as an official monitor since 2003. Congratulations on the 70th anniversary, and I hope to catch the German broadcast on 3955 kHz for many years to come. I will look forward to keeping myself updated with useful information about Korea through the channel. My favorite program is Magazine K. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the two hosts of the show. Once again, happy 70th birthday. This has been Bernd Seiser from Ottenau, Germany. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. It's Wednesday, the 15th of November, and welcome to another edition of Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon jang President Yun is on his way to San Francisco to attend the APEC summit, where he's set to call on world leaders for stronger cooperation to advance trade and investment. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. For our in-depth today, we delve into the government's decision not to revise the 52-hour maximum work week after the results of a three-month-long survey. And coming up for Korea Book Club, we'll be taking a look at the landmark work of translated Korean literature, Please Look After Mum by Shin Gyeong-suk. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. President Yoon Sang-yeol departed for the United States on Wednesday to attend the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in San Francisco. This year's theme is Creating a Resilient and Sustainable Future for All. He'll be taking part in a number of talks with other world leaders with a message calling for stronger solidarity and cooperation in trade and investment. For more on this story and our other headlines of the day, I'm joined in the studio now by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Chair. Daniel, hello. Hello there, Jango. So Yun's latest trip follows back-to-back visits to Seoul by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and the U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. President Yun has a busy few days ahead of him. Can you give us a rundown of his itinerary? Yes, President Yoon and First Lady Kim Gunhee departed for the United States from Seoul at around 2.15 p.m. The first item on the itinerary, a meeting with Korean residents in the host city, followed by an APEC CEO summit. You'll then meet young Korean leaders in the field of cutting-edge technology. On Thursday and Friday, Yoon will take part in different sessions of the APEC summit, mainly to discuss energy transition, supply chains, and the restoration of a multilateral trade system. 
In a written interview with the Associated Press, Yoon vowed to call for stronger solidarity and cooperation to advance trade and investment liberalization, innovation and digitalization, as well as inclusive and sustainable growth. He highlighted that the global economy is becoming further fragmented by the weaponization of economic resources and that supply chain risks pose the biggest hurdle to regional economic development. The president will also attend a summit of the U.S.-led Indo-Pacific Economic Framework on the silence of the APEC summit on Friday. On that day, Yun and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida will lead discussions at Stanford University to share ways the two countries and the U.S. can cooperate in the cutting-edge tech sector. A summit with Chinese President Xi Jinping is not confirmed. Uh, if it takes place, though, it will be the first in-person talks between the two since the meeting last November in Bali during the G20 summit. On that note, President Xi is already in the United States. He arrived on Tuesday local time. And there's, of course, high anticipation for his meeting with U.S. President Joe Biden. Yes, she will hold the second face-to-face talks with Biden on Wednesday. They'll likely discuss ways to stabilize bilateral relations. Japan's Kyoto News earlier this week reported that they will talk about a partial resumption of military communication during this session. Also, he's expected to meet American business figures. This is his first trip to the United States in six years. The last one was during the Trump administration. Meanwhile, the top diplomats of South Korea, the U.S. and Japan held talks on the sidelines of the APEC summit. Can you sum up that meeting for us? The talks were held in San Francisco on Tuesday. Foreign Minister Park Jin, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Japanese Foreign Minister Yoko Kamikawa held the session following their brief talks two months earlier on the margins of the U.N. General Assembly in New York. The trial reviewed the implementation of agreements reached by their leaders during their Camp David summit in August and discussed cooperation on North Korea issues. The ministers also shared info and discussed joint responses regarding North Korea's arms transfer to Russia following the summit Kim the following the Kim Putin summit in September. The officials also exchanged opinions on agenda items for the upcoming summit, uh, the Washington-Beijing summit, that is. They also discussed regional and global affairs, including the Israel-Hamas war. Talking of North Korea, the regime's state media revealed that they recently carried out tests on a newly developed solid fuel engine uh, designed for intermediate-range ballistic missiles. Can you tell us more? The Korean Central News Agency, or the KCNA, reported on Wednesday that the regime has developed new high-thrust solid fuel engines for intermediate ballistic missiles, that the first ground jet test for the first stage engine was conducted successfully on Saturday, a successful test of the second stage engine was carried out on Tuesday. The KCNA reported satisfactory results were achieved and that the reliability and sustain- stability rather, of the high-thrust solid fuel engine design and manufacturing technology were reaffirmed. The North's Missile General Bureau said the tests are essential to further enhancing the strategic offensive power of the armed forces amid grave security environment, according to them. Let's turn to some other headlines now. We have an update on the proposed plan to incorporate Kimpo City into Seoul. The city, the Seoul City Mayor, Osehun, has proposed a gradual plan allowing a quote-unquote buffer period for the incorporation of Gyeonggi provincial cities into Seoul. Can you expand on this for us? Yes, we were talking about the part of the ruling People Power Party's mega city Seoul vision. On Wednesday, at a meeting with Jo Gyeong-tae, the head of the PPP's committee on the project, the mayor called for a six- to ten-year period to guarantee the autonomy and financial neutrality of the cities to mitigate disadvantages to regional residents. Also, the amalgamation should improve the quality of life for citizens, reinforce Seoul's municipal competitiveness, and contribute to balanced development. 
He also requested a related special law to address concerns about Seoul not being eligible for general state subsidies provided to other municipalities. The PPP panel will meet with party chief Kim Gi-hyun on Thursday for an exchange of views. Oh will do so in a meeting with Gyeonggi Province Governor Kim Dong-yeon and Incheon Mayor Yu Jung-bok. And finally, unionized workers of the city-run Seoul Metro have confirmed that they will stage a second round of strikes next week. Can you tell us more? Yes, workers associated with the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, or KCTU, announced on Wednesday it will indefinitely carry on with the upcoming group action. This comes after they've staged a two-day warning strike last week, calling on management to withdraw a job-cutting plan. At a press conference, union leader Myung Sun Pil criticized the city government and the subway operator for violating a related law and an earlier collective agreement to fill vacancies created by retirements. Seoul Metro plans to lay off 2,212 workers or around 13.5% of its workforce by the year 2026 to improve its finances amid a substantial deficit. During the last round of negotiations on November 8th, management had proposed hiring 660 new workers in the second half of the year, up from the previously planned 388. The labor group demanded 868 additional hires to guarantee two-person on-site teams, consignment workers, and replacement for those retiring. The union was open to future negotiations, but management issued a statement last Thursday ramping up pressure and demanding a withdrawal of the strike. That's all for our news briefing today. Daniel, thank you for those updates. Thank you so much for having me. The South Korean government announced on Monday that it was scrapping its plan to reform the current 52-hour maximum workweek system. However, it said it will still seek flexibility for some industries and jobs. To that end, the presidential office promised to have sufficient discussions with both labour and management. The latest decision reflected the results of a public survey conducted from June to August on over 6,000 people, which found no overwhelming support for overall change. To get some expert analysis on the government's announcements, what reforms the nation needs and more, we're joined on the line now by two experts. First, we have Professor Kim Yong-jin, Professor of Management Information Systems at Sogang University. Professor Kim, hello. Hello, good evening. Good evening, and we also have with us our regular guest, Economics Professor Yang Jun-suk from the Catholic University of Korea. Professor Yang, hello to you too. Hello. Yes, so the current 52-hour maximum work week was introduced in 2018 under the previous administration, but President Yoon Sung-yeol promised to reform it, saying that it limited businesses and people who want to work more. So back in March, the government had proposed raising the work week cap to 69 hours while offering flexibility in scheduling those hours to be calculated on a weekly or monthly, quarterly by yearly or yearly basis. However, the government was forced to walk back that proposal after drawing intense backlash, particularly from young, work, from young workers. So that's the backdrop. Professors, can we first get your thoughts on the current 52-hour max work week that was introduced in 2018? Professor Kim, can we start with you? Well, you know, I'm uh, quite positive to the uh, current 52-hour work week you know, system. 
um, you know, there are some reasons. Most OECD countries have five-day work per week uh, system to balance between work and life. 52-hour work week means 40 hours of regular work per week and 12 hours of overtime you know, work per week. The extra 12 hours can be translated into one and a half day work. Uh, this amount of workload may help employer, uh, employees you know, keep their life healthier and balanced. Considering the advancement of digital technologies, you know, which help improve productivity of companies and the trend of four-day work per week, you know, globally, global scale, the 52-hour work week is relevant for Korea at the moment. Also, when we take into account the fact that Korea is one of the one of the countries that have the longest work hours per year, 52-hour work week system is good to you know reduce the total work hours per year. Right, and Professor Yang, what are your thoughts on the current 52-hour workweek system? Okay, well, when the rule was first imposed uh, by the previous administration, I remember both the uh, management and labor being angry about it. Management, because they cut down on their uh, flexibility uh, to uh, uh, impose working hours, and labor, because... Uh, well, if you cut work uh, work week from 69 hours to 42 and a supposedly uh, normal working week was 40 hours, uh, you're cu- really cutting overtime hours. And overtime hours are most profitable for the uh, workers because well, they're getting time and a half or even uh, twice their uh, normal earnings if they're working overtime on weekends. Uh, so there was a lot of anger and there was also perhaps a need on both sides for more, uh, both uh, more flexibility. Uh, so uh, that's perhaps why the uh, UN administration uh, decided to try to rework this rule in March. Uh, but uh, apparently uh, they couldn't come up with one solution that will satisfy everybody. That's not surprising because, well, what is the ideal work week? Well, that really differs from industry to industry. For some industries, even 40 hours per week may be too much. Uh, airline pilots, they only work on every other day because if they work for eight hours every day, that would just be uh, playing too tiring and they would lose attention. Uh, but for some jobs, you may be able to work for more than 52 hours per week. Uh, so it really depends on industry to industry and uh, time to time because, well, uh, We've always known that sometimes you need to have crunch hours. Uh, For example, in the United States, people tend to work more uh, when it's near Christmas time, when they're preparing for Christmas uh, shopping rush or uh, preparing uh, various uh, gifts uh, that uh, could be sold on Christmas Day. Uh, So uh, it really... Uh, you really need some flexibility on how to schedule your time for some industries. And I think we're getting closer to realizing that. So that leads us to the announcement this week. On Monday, the government announced that it will maintain the current 52-hour workweek system, but come up with reform measures for flexibility in certain types of industries and occupations. The decision was announced along with the results of a public survey on working hours conducted over a three-month period from June. Uh, To give more information on this survey, the survey was conducted through door-to-door interviews on a total of 6,030 people, including 3,839 workers, 976 business owners and 1,215 citizens. 
The results found that 48.2% of the public responded that the 52-hour workweek system was helpful in resolving long working hours. Meanwhile, for business owners, an overwhelming 85.5% of them said that they never experienced any difficulties with the current system. So, Professor Kim, what did you make of the government's latest decision and the results of this survey? Yeah, to me, the, the uh, survey result was quite, you know, expected. You know, I totally agree to the uh, government intention to maintain the current 52-hour work week system, but you know, come up with the reform uh, measures for uh, certain types of uh, industries and occupations. As the survey shows, the 52-hour work week system is being well settled in uh, Korean society, and people like it. You know, it has contributed to the resolution of long, you know, work, working hour problems, you know, which have caused much adverse effect, including lack of family time, lack of time to develop employees' capabilities, you know, work-related disease, so on. Um, it, it's been only, you know, five years after the 50-hour uh, work system was implemented in Korea. We need to wait, you know, a little bit more to see uh, how it works. With regard to the reforming measures for uh, the types of industries and occupations for the system, I believe it is the right time to modify the system to have more flexibility in it. Um, there is no silver bullet to solve, you know, all the problems, right? Um, as Professor Young mentioned, different industries and different jobs may require different, you know, workout systems to accommodate their work practices. You know, all, although the, the the cap of 52 hours is kept same. That's, you know, my idea. Professor Yang, what did you make of this survey? Were you surprised at all? Well, uh, well uh, I was surprised at the beginning. Then I did a little uh, number search, and now I'm not that much surprised. Uh, now, obviously, uh, when we had that 52-hour uh, work week first imposed, it didn't affect everybody the same way. I mean, most people worked a uh, 40-hour work week. It was only uh, some workers who uh, worked more than 52 hours to begin with. Uh, so looking at some old labor statistics in 2017, only about 20% of the workers worked more than 52 hours. In 2019, that number was 15%. Now, on the uh, latest uh, labor report, that's October 2023, only about 11% of the workers are working more than 52 hours per week. So in a sense, it was always a problem with some industries, some companies, and some workers. I suspect that a bigger problem, the one that affected perhaps more people was uh, problems with white collar workers uh, who are always on call. We hear about uh, the uh, bosses calling their uh, white collar workers uh, after uh, the working hours during late nights or during weekends. I suspect that that uh, was, I think, a bigger problem for most uh, workers because that's really not counted during working times. It's not, you're not really getting, getting compensated for it, uh, but you're effectively working. So I think uh, the very fact that the uh, most people were not working uh, for more than 52 hours per week, hmm. and a lot of people were uh, supposedly working for uh, 52 hours or 40-hour working week, but they were always seemingly on call and doing unpaid work. I think that creates uh, more incentive 
for a uh, average worker to uh, w- try to work for less time and have a, a clearer boundaries between working hours and non-working hours. So that probably explains the result of this poll. Right. So while there was again no wholesale reform of the 52-hour workweek system. The government did say, as we mentioned, that it will pursue some reforms to provide more flexibility for certain business sectors and industries facing heavy workloads, but it did not specify which industries. The presidential office did promise, though, to have sufficient discussions with both labour and management before pursuing such further reforms. Professor Yang, what industries and occupations do you think need these revisions? The government is widely predicted to increase the maximum weekly hours to less than 60 hours for manufacturing and producing sectors. Right. Um, I think uh, if you're working on an assembly line, uh, production line, uh, then uh, especially during crunch times, I mentioned uh, in uh, Christmas time earlier, uh, but it could be when you're meeting that extra demand that I think it's reasonable to uh, try to have more than longer than 52-hour work week. Uh, and uh, one of the problems is, well, you still can uh, work more than 52 hours. You just have to, current, under current laws, average it out uh, for one month or three-month period. I, uh, at least for businesses, uh, much more logical uh, length for averaging out working hours is probably a year uh, because a lot of businesses work with annual cycles, uh, but the uh, labor unions, they claim that if you had a too long a period where you're averaging out working uh, the uh, working hours, uh, then uh, on some weeks you may be hit with consecutive weeks of working 69 hours per week. So they're going to have to discuss how you deal with those crunch times. Another industry that might go beyond 52 hours is research and development. Uh, during the uh, corona pandemic, uh, there was uh, the government authorized uh, work week for more than 52 hours for people who were doing research on uh, coronavirus. Uh, and while uh, hopefully we won't have another pandemic, uh, there is a lot of times when uh, you do have to work on crunch times on things like R&D or IT uh, because, well, it's inherent in that industry uh, that you have to deliver uh, product on time. Now, uh, other fields, uh, some people were saying construction perhaps should go over 52 hours. Uh, medical services should go over 52 hours. I have some doubts about that because in those jobs, it's really very important for you to be uh, at attention all the time. You cannot afford to make mistakes. Uh, but if you're working for too long an hour, uh, too long an hours per day or per week, uh, you may be able, to, uh, you may make mistakes, cause a, a serious accident. So I'm less sure about those industries, construction and uh, medical services, even though those are some of the uh, industries that are being mentioned uh, for lengthening the uh, working hours mm. beyond 52 hours. Professor Kim, you mentioned earlier that you agreed with the need for uh, flexibility in some industries, but which mm-hmm. industries do you need? Do you think need uh, the this flexibility, and what do you well, think on the possible reforms? The Professor Yang, you know, explained very well. Um, like you know, most cases, business owners or you know, employers um, argue that 
uh, especially in the uh, manufacturing sector and construction sectors, um, they need to have flexible, you know, work work week system. But just like you know, uh, Professor Yang mentioned, I um, doubt about it. And to my own experience, most knowledge works such as you know, research and development, the design, experiment, testing, software development, and consulting. These kind of jobs, in its nature, require very intensive working hours to make you know, um, our some some you know outcomes. And also, these jobs may not be replaced by machines or tools easily. Although you know, recent development in uh, generative AI may you know throw some hope. Uh, to improve uh, the productivity of these jobs. Um, anyway, you know, I, I think you know these kind of knowledge-intensive jobs um, need to have more flexibility. Again, when it comes to you know production and manufacturing, and if the business you know has a serious seasonal demand, then they may have to have increased work hours for the season. Otherwise, you know, the companies need to increase more capital investment rather than you know, to improve the productivity, you know, rather than increasing just working hours, you know. Um, that might have a lot of adverse effect for the health of employees. And then um, if employees, you know, um, are in not good, not healthy state, um, their impact on the productivity is, you know, uh, uh, twice less than you know regular employees, mm. so we cannot do those kind of things. Right, as we mentioned at this, uh, earlier, the reason the 52-hour cap was originally brought in was, of course, to address the work-life balance issue. But even mm-hmm. with this adoption, according to data released by the OECD on Monday, uh-huh. in 2022, yearly labour hours in South Korea stood at 1,901 hours, the fifth longest among 38 OECD member nations, and the OECD average for yearly hours was 1,752. So. Mm-hmm. Professor Kim, what do you think more needs to be done for South Korea to adopt reasonable uh, work week hours in South Korea? What advice would you give to Korean policymakers? Well, you know, uh, that number, you know, the, we, Korea ranked fifth. It's very good. I mean, it, it used to be, you know, uh, ranked to uh, number two <laughs> in OECD you know, uh, countries. Uh, before in getting to the point, you know, um, I'd like to cite the research result by the World Health Organization and the uh, International Labor Organization um, that estimated globally in 2016, one in 10 workers were exposed to working 50, 55 or more hours per week. And 745,000 uh, 745, persons died as a result of having a heart disease uh, or in a stroke attributable to having work uh, these long hours. Making exposures to long working hours, um, the occupational risk factor with the largest disease burden. So it is, you know, um, the very clear. Uh, absolutely, you know, it is good to make, you know, work hours flexible to give many benefits, you know, to both workers and employers. However, when we reform it, we have to consider the adverse effect of intensive long working hours, even though we, we make it flexible, right? On this basis, uh, we may, you know, uh, get to the discussion about, you know, how to implement um, uh, a more flexible work week system. 
Um, at the moment, I strongly believe that keeping the current, you know, 52-hour work system um, with some, you know, flexible work work system for knowledge-intensive jobs and mm-hmm. seasonal demand uh, responding, uh, uh, seasonal demand responding jobs. Right, and Professor Yang, same question to you. What do you think would be a reasonable work week system in South Korea, and what advice uh, would you have for Korean policymakers? Okay, well, two general advice, not necessarily to the uh, policymakers, but the, one of the reasons why people are working so many hours is that companies prefer to use existing workers to work longer rather than hiring new workers and uh, split the working time between the new worker and the uh, Uh, existing worker. So you have to wonder about uh, why uh, does the uh, company prefer to use the workers uh, that they already hired rather than uh, hire new workers to uh, increase the workforce. And one factor may be that new workers are not productive. uh, And another factor uh, on the management side may be because in order to hire new workers, uh, you need to uh, ha- you have a lot of fixed costs like the uh, social insurance, unemployment insurance, pensions, and so on. So uh, we should put in some more work on seeing how we can reduce some of these fixed costs for new workers, so that we can hire new workers and uh, shorten the uh, working time for existing workers. Uh, and then the second point. Uh, I think this really has to do with the quality of management in Korea. Mm. But if you look at, say, European or American managers, they're trying to cut working hours because, well, when they work more than 40 hours, it's overtime, and overtime is more expensive. It's 150% of their basic pay, time and a half. So you want to cut down overtime hours. But in Korea, uh, it seems like they don't really care. Uh, They'd rather pay uh, overtime they, uh, and 30 seconds, that Professor. Be because the uh, uh, management is less efficient than uh, the uh, U.S. or Europe. Uh, so um, I think management quality should be looked at also. Okay, we'll leave it there. We've been speaking to Professor Kim Yong-jin from Sangang University and Professor Yang Jun-suk from the Catholic University of Korea. Thank you both for your time and your thoughts today. Thank you. No, thank you for having me. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 53.42 points, or 2.2% on Wednesday, to close the day at 2,486.67. The Tekavik Kosdaq also rose, jumping 15.17 points, or 1.91%, to close at 809.36. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 28.11 against the U.S. dollar, Closing the day at 1,300.81. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's our daily segment now, Korea Trending. This is where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online today. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, contributor Diane Yu. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hey, hello, Jango. So what do you have for us first today? 
The South Korean boy band Seventeen was seen on the stage in Paris on Tuesday local time, but it wasn't for something that you would expect. It was for a special session during the 13th UNESCO Youth Forum at the organization's headquarters. Beyond their musical performances for entertainment, the group showed that they can influence the younger generation by delivering impactful speeches. Wow, so that sounds like quite the collaboration. Can you first tell us more about the Youth Forum? What is it for? The Youth Forum is held every two years in conjunction with the UNESCO General Assembly, and it brings together 170 youth changemakers to discuss climate change and other pressing social issues. And this is the first time that a K-pop act has been assigned an entire session at a UNESCO general level event. Right, so that sounds like quite an honor for the group. What mm-hmm. did the members say in their speech? Well, twelve members attended, excluding one member who was taking a break from activities due to a knee injury. And due to the large number of members, only six of them took the mic on behalf of the group. The main theme of their speech was about togetherness and hope. Members emphasized that even though they faced difficulties in the beginning, they were able to come together and overcome those obstacles. They also said that sharing dreams is sharing positivity. And hope, and pledge to have an active role in promoting the importance of education as UNESCO ambassadors. After the members gave their speech, they performed on stage in front of representatives from over 170 countries and hundreds of 17 fans. <laughs> this was quite special because it was the group's first live performance in Europe. Oh wow! So there was extra meaning there as yeah. well. Uh, it sounds like it would have been quite the experience for the attendees. Mm-hmm. I understand the group's relationship with UNESCO began last year, right? Right. In May 2022, Seventeen made a donation to the Korean National Commission for UNESCO, UNESCO Korea, to help children and youth around the world in commemoration of their seventh debut anniversary. This led to the launch of the Going Together campaign by their agency, Pledis Entertainment and UNESCO Korea, to promote the importance of education to the world. UNESCO headquarters took note of this campaign and proposed a tripartite agreement to the UNESCO Korea and Pledis, which led Seventeen to give a speech at this youth forum. Yeah, so BTS, of course, paved the way for this sort of enterprise with their collaboration with UNICEF and speeches at the UN. Mm -hmm. But it's always great to hear uh, of K-pop bands going beyond their music Mm. to try and make uh, some sort of difference. Right. Let's continue on to our second story now. What do you have for us, Diane? It's a bit chillier these days, but beautiful autumn foliage in Korea drew big crowds over the past couple of weeks. Mm. However, along with more people staying outdoors, there's one particular disease that's been on the rise as well, scrub pitis. In the past four weeks, the number of scrub pitis patients has increased rapidly, and the number of ticks, which are vectors for the disease, has increased. According to the Korea Disease Control and Prevention Agency on Wednesday, the number of scrub typus patients that occurred in the 44th week of this year was 784, a 5.4-fold increase compared to the three weeks before. Wow, so it is indeed scrub typhus season then. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what exactly is scrub typhus? You said it's uh, spread by ticks, right? Does getting a bite from ticks always lead to infection then? Not really. It's a disease caused by a mite-borne bacterial pathogen, Orientia tsutsugamushi. So basically, if you get bit by a tick that holds that certain bacteria, you get scrub typhus. Symptoms such as fever, rash, chills, and headaches occur within 10 days after being bitten, and black scab form on the skin. It's a class 3 infectious disease in Korea, meaning it requires continuous surveillance. The fatality 
mortality rate is not high at 0.1 to 0.3 percent by domestic standards, but the intensity of symptoms is known to be severe. So it's not really deadly, but it does sound rather unpleasant. Mm. So how can we protect ourselves from getting bitten and getting this disease? It's best to wear clothing that minimizes exposure, such as light-colored long sleeves, clothes, socks and gloves when doing outdoor activities and avoid touching the grass. You should also use tick repellent, wash your clothes immediately after returning home from outdoor activities, and check your body for ticks or insect bites. The KDCA emphasized that because scrub typus can be treated with antibiotics, it's important to visit a medical institution during the early stages of infection when suspicious symptoms appear, report any history of tick bites or outdoor activities, and receive treatment. Indeed. So stay careful out there if you are doing any sort of outdoor activities right. at the moment. Uh, let's move on to our final story. What else has been trending today? With the hope of letting the world know more about Korean food, the Korea Tourism Organization released a video on Wednesday featuring Hwang Hee-chan, the South Korean professional footballer who plays for the English Premier League club Wolverhampton Wanderers FC. The slogan of this promotional video is Cooking Korea, with cooking C changed to AK. And the 27-year-old footballer appears and talks about his memories of the rice cake dish tteokbokki and cooks it himself. Right, so cooking career with Hwang Yi-chan. This is very fitting because Hwang is becoming more well-known among British football fans because of his great form this season. Mm. He's uh, broken his English Premier League goal-scoring record already, Mm -hmm. including goals in big games such as against Manchester City in September. He was even named the club's Player of the Month two days ago. So it is... A great opportunity, it seems, then, to help promote Korean culture to what possibly could be a new audience. For sure. The video was produced with a focus on promoting not only Korean food culture, but also local tourism related to food ingredients that can be found in Korea's iconic dishes. So, for example, for Hwang's video on tteokbokki, the organization was aiming to inform the viewers about where the main ingredients come from, including Suncheon County's famous red pepper paste and Busan City's fish cake. The video can be found on Hwang Yi-chan's social media accounts and the KTO's official YouTube channel. And along with the promotional video on K-Food, the KTO is conducting other events for foreigners living outside of Korea, right? Right. The organization opened a food tourism special hall on its platform Visit Korea and is holding an online event for foreigners until December 6th in connection with this promotional video. If participants post a video of themselves cooking and tasting tteokbokki and include the hashtag hashtag tteokbokki and hashtag KFood on their personal Instagram accounts, they can get a chance to win gifts such as airline tickets to Korea. An official from the KTO said that Korean food is becoming an increasingly important factor among the reasons for choosing to travel to Korea and added the organization will continue to widely promote the appeal of K-food so that more foreigners can visit the country. Okay, that's all for our Korea trending segment today. Diane, thank you for those stories and we'll see you next time. See you next time. We continue on now to our weekly literary corner, Korea Book Club, where we explore the world of Korean literature and books each week through works available in translation and beyond. Joining us in the studio now, it is our literary critic, Barry Welsh, guiding us as ever. Barry, hello. It's great to see you. Yes, hello. 
So what do you have for us this week? Well, this week we're reviewing a classic novel called Please Look After Mom. The Korean title is Oma Rul Butake, and it's by Shin Kyung Suk. It was published in Korean in 2008 and translated into English by Chi Young Kim and published in English in 2011. And Shin is, of course, a very prominent author here in South Korea, celebrated for her sensitive and insightful portrayal of human emotions and relationships. Born in 1963 in a small village in Cheonggup in the North Chola province. Shin's upbringing in a rural setting deeply uh, influenced her writing and these humble beginnings in a family of farmers gave her a unique perspective on life which is evident uh, in many of her uh, novels and stories. Her journey to literary success began when she moved to Seoul at the age of 16 where she worked in a factory while attending evening school Uh, and this period of her life was marked by hardship uh, as well as resilience and that would also become a, a source of inspiration for, for her novels. Uh, she made her debut in 1985 with a short story called Winter Fables, which won the New Writers' Contest, organised by the Korean literary magazine Munhak Dongne. And that achievement marked the beginning of a very uh, long and prolific career now in Korean literature. Mm. Uh, and across her career, Shin has been recognised for her ability to uh, delve into the depths of uh, human emotion and experience uh, as well as examining the intricacies of interpersonal relationships. Uh, Her writing often focuses on themes of family, memory, identity, uh, and is praised for its emotional depth and uh, as well as her lyrical uh, writing style. Uh, And today's novel is actually her most uh, famous novel. Uh, Please Look After Mom uh, was uh, an international bestseller and was famously awarded the prestigious Man Asian Literary Prize back in 2012. Uh, and and winning that award made Shin, uh, she was the, the first Korean writer as well as the first woman to, to win the award. Uh, and so this novel it was a critical uh, commercial success. It's been translated into over 30 languages at this point, And it really established uh, uh, Shin's reputation on the global literary stage. Right. This book is considered a modern day classic, uh-huh. really. And yep. its international success was groundbreaking for Korean literature as well which makes me very surprised that we haven't talked about this book right, uh-huh. already, either with me or the previous host of right. Career 24. But I'm glad we're getting to tackle it now. OK, so can you give us a brief overview of the plot and the mm-hmm. main characters of uh, Please Look After Mom? Right, sure, yeah. So uh, you know, Please Look After Mom is uh, a deeply moving and introspective novel. It's centred around the disappearance of an elderly woman named Park Sonyo. Uh, when Sonyo goes missing in a crowded Seoul subway... Uh, her family begins a desperate uh, search across the city to find her and this serves as a backdrop for the story. Uh, the novel unfolds through the perspectives of different family members so each chapter is dedicated to a specific uh, character's viewpoint uh, and these include Sonyo's husband, uh, her daughter Chihon, her son Hyongchol and eventually a chapter from Sonyo's uh, own perspective. Uh, and as each character reflects on their relationship with Sonyo, the narrative delves into their memories, regrets uh, and realisation about the, 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 the woman that they've lost. So through these perspectives, the novel reveals Sonia's life as a devoted wife and mother uh, who sacrificed her dreams and her own desires for the sake of her family. Uh, and the family members, they confront their own neglect and uh, the sort of taken-for-granted attitude that they had towards her. And they recall moments and aspects of Sonia's life that they overlooked, that, that they just didn't pay attention to. And this reveals a complex 
uh, a complex woman, a complex character who endured many hardships uh, and unspoken uh, pains. Uh, and as the search continues, so the novel explores themes of love and sacrifice, uh, family dynamics, uh, and this uh, uh, sense of deep uh, guilt and sorrow that's associated with uh, taking a loved one for granted. Uh, and the story is not just about finding Sonio, but also about the family's uh, emotional journey toward understanding uh, and appreciating the quiet and often invisible sacrifices that she made. Right, so it's centred around this incident of an elderly woman who goes missing and the family's uh, reflections in light of that incident. But there are bigger themes beyond that, right? Uh What issues is Shin addressing and how does it reflect uh, aspects of Korean culture as well? Right, well, uh, so what Shin's doing in this book is... Uh, you know, she's trying to capture the essence of maternal uh, sacrifice uh, and the often unacknowledged uh, labour of mothers or female family members uh, in general, uh, which is, you know, many argue convincingly is a significant aspect of traditional Korean culture. Uh, the story unfolds through the search for the, the missing matriarch, the missing mother in the family, and this serves as a metaphor for exploring deeper themes of love and sacrifice and regret within the family structure. So in Korean society, the role of the mother is traditionally associated with selfless uh, caregiving and sacrifice, often at the cost of her own identity and desires. And this is, again, some would argue, deeply rooted in the Confucian values that have shaped Korean culture, Mm. emphasising filial piety and and respect for one's parents. So the mother in the novel here symbolises the universal figure of a mother whose life is dedicated to the well-being of her family, but often without recognition or appreciation. And as the family members reflect on on Sonia's life, on their mother's life, following her disappearance, they're sort of forced to confront uh, their own neglect and the ways that they've taken her presence and sacrifices for granted. And it's this introspection which I think provides a a poignant commentary on how modernisation and urbanisation in Korea have led to a shift in family dynamics and values, which we're still seeing today, of course. Mm. Uh, And the novel suggests a growing generational gap and a decline in traditional values, where the elderly, especially mothers, who devote their lives to their families, are often left uh, feeling isolated and unappreciated. Again, this is an issue which is very much alive in the discourse today. Uh, And moreover, the novel sheds light, I think, on gender roles in general in Korean society, where women, especially older generation, are expected to conform to self-sacrificing roles of of, uh, being being caregivers. And I think it highlights, still a decade and a half later, highlights the societal pressures and expectations placed on women and how these roles are often undervalued and overlooked. Yes, it's an often a heartbreaking and deeply reflective work that really moved readers here in Korea. But as we mentioned, the book also found international acclaim. It's interesting because the circumstances are quite specific to Korea, it seems, but it mm-hmm. uh, seemed to reach a wider audience as well. What do you think made Please Look After Mum a significant read for international audiences? 
Right, yeah. So it is deeply rooted in, in uh, Korean culture, but the themes of the novel are, I think, universally relatable. So this is an exploration of a mother's love, sacrifice, uh, the often unrecognized labors of women, uh, and this speaks to readers uh, you know, worldwide. And I think the international success highlights the ability of Korean literature to transcend cultural boundaries. Uh, and this makes it a significant piece for anyone interested in understanding not just Korean culture and literature, but also just the universal human experience of family dynamics and uh, maternal love. So Please Look After Mom resonates with readers not just as a story of a missing person, but also as a powerful critique of societal norms and even a call to acknowledge and appreciate the silent sacrifices historically made by mothers. I think it holds a mirror up to Korean society, uh, urges a, a re-evaluation of family relationships and the roles of women, and it's a genuinely seminal work in modern Korean literature that speaks to universal themes of love and sacrifice and family. And it concludes with a profound sense of unresolved uh, emotion and introspection. And I think it leaves readers to ponder the true uh, essence and meaning of family relationships and perhaps your own relationship with your mother. It's a very touching portrayal of family, memory uh, and the unspoken endurance of, of women, making it a poignant and significant work in contemporary literature. Right. It was a fascinating work and a fitting work, I think, to bring Korean literature to a wider global audience and still powerful today. Once again, it is called Please Look After Mum by Shin Kyung suk translated by Kim Ji-young. And it was a belated pick for yes. Korea Book Club. <laughs> Certainly better late than never. Barry, thank you for that. Uh, we look forward to the next one. Take care. OK, take care. Bariton Tehanchem, winner of the Queen Elizabeth competition. You're now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. We've come to our closing segment now, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Okay. So what do you have for us first today? Well, it is Hong Yu's article from the K-pop section of the Korea Herald. If any of our listeners are fans of the K-pop group Stray Kids, then you might want to watch the 2023 Billboard Music Awards. That's because the group is among the list of acts that will take the stage on Sunday and perform. And they will only be the second K-pop group, uh, boy group, to perform at the awards. So it is quite a big deal for them, I'm sure. Okay, I'm sure they'll be joining some big names in the music industry across the world, right? Yeah, right. Uh, not all acts have been announced as of yet. But so far, we know that Mexican singer Peso Pluma, American singer-songwriter BB Rexa, and French DJ and music producer David Guetta are set to perform. And we do know that Stray Kids will not be the only Korean act. That's because the group... New jeans were added to the list several days ago. But yeah, the boy group are expected to perform S-Class, the title track of their third studio album Five Star, and La La La, the title track of their latest album Rockstar. 
Yes, we often talk about K-pop groups like Blackpink, BTS, New Jeans doing right. well overseas on this show. But mm. uh, Stray Kids has had a couple of uh, great years as well, right? The group has, yeah. Last year, the, they showed their popularity by topping the Billboard 200 with the mini-album Ordinary. Then in July this year, Stray Kids became the first K-pop headliner of Lollapalooza Paris. They also won the Best K-pop Award at the 2023 MTV Video Music Awards in September. And on top of performing at the ceremony on Sunday, the group has been nominated for two awards, the Top uh, Global K-pop Artist and the Top K-pop Album Awards. So, yeah. Okay, yeah, so they're definitely ones to watch out for this Sunday at the Billboard Music Awards. Let's move on to our next article. What do you have for us? Well, Korea's largest gaming event, G-Star, will take place from Thursday to Sunday at Bexco Exhibition and Convention Center in Busan. So I chose Bek Byung-yeol's article in the game section of the Korea Times, which has all all the information of what to expect at the event and more. Yes, this is a major event. Thousands Mm. of gamers uh, come in droves so that they can see what some of the biggest gaming companies will release in the future. Uh, They're able to get a glimpse of the types of games that they'll be able to play next year. Yeah, and it seems like this year's event will be the biggest. Uh, That's because the number of promotional booths that that participating companies will set up is more than the record that was set in 2019. Mm. Like you mentioned, various types of games will be showcased, including mobile games and console games. And the article mentioned that this year, G-Star will focus on subculture games. Okay, can you explain what a subculture game is for our listeners who may not know what it is? Well, they are games that have Japanese anime-style characters. This has become pretty mainstream in the gaming world, apparently, and more people are enjoying cosplaying as these characters. So if you're a fan of cosplay, it might be worth checking out the event as well. To make sure that no incidents occur, tickets are sold in advance, so you can't try to get tickets at the door. Mm. Also, there will be more security regulations to ensure that dangerous items are not brought in. So if you plan on going to the event while wearing a costume, the outfit and props will be inspected. <laughs> so just a heads up. OK, that's up beginning tomorrow. Yes. Right, OK, that's where I leave it for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we wrap up our show for today. Thank you for staying with us. Do join us again tomorrow for more news, views and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio strives to promptly update our listeners on safety procedures during emergency situations. The following are recommended guidelines to follow in the case of an earthquake. During an earthquake, you are advised to stay indoors. Going outside could be extremely dangerous, as you could be hit by shattering windows or falling signs. While indoors, turn the gas off and go under a table or desk to protect your head. Refrain from using gas or electricity until after it is confirmed to be safe. If you're in an elevator, promptly get off and seek shelter. If you're on the street, cover your head with your hands or bags and stay away from brick walls and gates. If you're driving, stop your car on the right side of the road. Before seeking shelter, close your car windows and leave your keys in the ignition then get out of your vehicle. Once the ground stops shaking, request help for the injured, while remaining mindful of possible aftershocks. Please check our website at world.kbs.co.kr for up-to-date information and procedures.